Is that better? There we go. There we go. That works much better. Good morning, PBC family. Let me get this back in my pocket. There we go. All right. So when someone of great status dies, it seems like the world pauses. One such moment in time was on a Friday afternoon, November 23rd, 1963. And for some of you, I could ask where you were when you heard the news of the assassination of the 35th president of the United States, John F. Kennedy in Dallas, Texas. Countless articles, books, documentaries, and movies have been made around the events of JFK's assassination. It has even become fictionalized in various ways, be it a time-traveling novel by Stephen King, rightly entitled 112263, or used as a plot device in showing the history of one of my favorite X-Files characters, the cigarette smoking man. In 1992, Congress enacted the President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act. This act mandated that all assassination-related material be housed in one single collection. This collection consists of more than five million pages of content, ranging from records and photographs to sound recordings and artifacts related to this one event in time. Most of these records are open to the public for research. At the end of 2022, 13,173 documents were posted online at this collection. And while it may not be as heavily documented as JFK's death, this morning we're going to look at another John's death. If you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. Over the last three weeks, we have been looking at the parables found in Matthew chapter 13 which Jesus explained to the disciples in verse 11 that they had been given to them to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. The first parable, the parable of the sower, we heard our our brother Kenny uh, preach on that. It's found in verses 3 through 9, and Jesus explains to the disciples in verses 18 through 23. And it is a parable about how the human heart and how humans respond to the message of salvation. What we see, beginning in verse 53 of chapter 13, is how this parable applied directly to the people of the day. Last week, our brother Nathan preached on verses 50 through 58, and how the people of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth rejected the Messiah. Today, we're looking at the beginning of chapter 14, and we're going to see the hard heart of Herod. Both of these rejections are example of what Chapter 13, verse 4 reads, Seeds that fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. As Nathan touched upon last week, the people of Nazareth knew who Jesus was, had seen him grow up, and knew about the miraculous works that he had been doing, and yet they still refused to believe that he was the Messiah, questioning his authority and rejecting him. Verse 57 tells us that they actually took offense at the work that that he had been doing. And because of their unbelief, Jesus did not do many mighty works there in Nazareth. This morning, we're going to continue into chapter 14 of Matthew and look at who Herod the Tetrarch was and the role he had in the death of John the Baptist. Before we begin, please pray with me. 
Father God, we come to you this morning, Lord, asking that you speak to us, speak to our hearts, Lord, as we take a look at this, these verses in Matthew, Lord. Uh, for many of us, this is, just, uh, this is a story that we've heard many times, but Lord, there is truth for us to glean from this. It is in your word for a reason, and just uh, may our hearts and ears be open to that this morning. Lord, uh, help us to rely on you. Uh, Lord, help us to uh, just uh, hear what it is that you want us to hear from this, to see what it is. And Lord, um, may your truth uh, be spoken this morning through me. In Christ's name I pray, amen. All right, so I think it's important for us to know the historical context of this passage before we dive into it. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been our primary focus, except at the beginning of chapter 3, which is actually where John the Baptist was introduced and begins to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. But if we take a look at chapter 14, all of a sudden, Herod the Tetrarch has taken center stage. This entire passage, minus the mention of Jesus in verse 1 and in verse 12, is all about Herod. Um, Herod has heard the report. Herod has arrested John. Herod wants to kill John. Herod throws a birthday party. Herod makes an oath. He is our primary focus here. So, who was Herod Antipas? He was a Tetrarch, which is not technically a king and translates to ruler of one-fourth. He was one of Herod the Great's son, whom we know about from Matthew chapter 2. Herod the Great is the one who sent the wise men to look for the one who had been born king of the Jews after they came to Jerusalem in search of him. He then went on to kill all of the male children born in Bethlehem that were under two year, the age of two years. Well, after Herod the Great died, he had killed a majority of his sons, so Rome intervened and divided his kingdom into four parts. And there should be a map coming up. If you take a look at it, you'll see how the um, Herod's entire nation was divided into four parts. Um, Herod Antipas ruled over the light purple area, which consisted of the regions of Galilee and Perea. This is important because those the two areas where not only did John the Baptist do his ministry, but Galilee is where Jesus did a lot of his own ministry. And that is why Herod is a part of this story. While they're not as prominent anymore, there used to be a time that soap operas ruled the airwaves. Maybe you were uh, afternoon soap person and liked shows like All My Children, General Hospital, or Days of Our Lives. Or maybe the nighttime soaps were more uh, your liking and when they ruled supreme shows such as Dynasty, Knott's Landing, and Dallas. Once again, if you're of a certain age in this room, uh, you can probably remember the phenomenon of the third season finale of the show Dallas in 1980, Who Shot J.R.? The episode in which the culprit was revealed eight months later after being shot is one of the most watched television broadcasts of all time, netting an estimated 83 million people tuning in to find out who shot JR. Dallas had such a cultural impact at the time that when I was being born and my parents were considering baby names, my papa wanted a JR in the family. <laughs> Hence, Jason Roberts. So, Herod and Tippus lived a life 
And I bring up soap operas because the life you lived would seem at home on any of these soap operas that, soap operas that I've mentioned. And like any other good soap operas, there's a cast of characters to his story. So we have Herod the Tetrarch. The Herods were well known for tyranny, debauchery, riches, and more. They had some understanding of Jewish law because they were partly Jewish, the other part of them being Edomites. But they did not follow Jewish law. And due to the power that they had in the region they ruled, they probably considered themselves above the Jewish law. So while visiting his half-brother, Herod Philip, Herod Antipas fell in love with Philip's wife, Herodias. Herodias decided to divorce Philip and marry Antipas, making their marriage not only both adulterous, but incestuous. This was such a sin that when John the Baptist finally enters the picture, he begins rebuking Antipas, and that is the reason he was thrown into prison. If you look at verse 4, it says, since John had been telling him it's not lawful for you to have her. The actual um, usage of the word telling is not a one-time telling, but almost like he was continually nagging them about their sin. He was not afraid to tell them that the relationship they were in was adulterous and insidious and as against that Jewish law, which they should fall under. One of the commentaries I read compared Herod to the people of today who like to think about spiritual things but never actually commit to Christian faith. We know from the other telling of this story, which we find in Mark's gospel, that Herod and Tippus liked to listen to John the Baptist speak. John, uh, in Mark's gospel, it tells us that he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Herod probably saw religion as a diversion and not a commitment. Look at verses 1 and 2. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus. So Jesus is in his area. These reports are coming to Herod. And he, he tells his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous works are at work in him. Herod hears these reports of Jesus and immediately thinks that it must have been John the Baptist who's been risen from the dead. Um, for those that don't know, 3 through 12 are actually told in flashback. It's not a continuous story. When I was younger, that was a confusion to me. Um, but yeah, 3 through 12 is more of a, he's thinking John the Baptist has been raised to the dead, so it's telling us of what's happened to John the Baptist since we've last heard from him. Um, Herod would not have had to inquire far or much to know that Jesus' miracles were happening at the same time during John the Baptist's ministry. Um, Herod did not care enough to investigate for the truth himself, which can be said for many in our own day. They can't be in, bothered to investigate the claims of Jesus. So we know who Herod is. Let's do a refresher of who John the Baptist is. Just last Sunday, and we did a review this morning as well with our kids, we were teaching the kids Matthew chapter 3 and how John the Baptist was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. I think it's important for us to remember how John started off his ministry. He wasn't going around town to town in a nice uh, suit, but he lived in the wilderness. He wore a garment made of camel hair, and he was eating locusts and honey. This is the prophet who decides to walk into Herod Antipas' kingdom and reportedly call him and Herodias out on their sin. 
and I already pointed out with the map. John came under Herod's power because the, his ministry was being exercised in the land of uh, Perea. And then our final characters in the party are Herodias and her daughter. Herodias is the wife of Herod Antipas, and she's also the mother of the dancer at the birthday party for Antipas. Um, this is not uh, Herod Antipas' daughter, but her, her daughter with, King, uh, with Herod Philip. Um, Herodias held a grudge against John, and she wanted him dead, but her husband had thrown him in jail. So she was just waiting for a perfect opportunity, possibly. We have our characters, and now here's our setting. We have a birthday banquet for Herod the Tetrarch. This isn't some kid's birthday party at a Roman version of Chuck E. Cheese. And it's not a surprise party where all of Antipas' friends and family have gathered together celebrating a milestone. If we look at Mark's account to get a better idea of this setting, what we see is that Herod is giving a banquet for his noblemen, all of his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. So this is men with power and strength and uh, royalty. I imagine that the conversation at this party was both loud and unrestrained, and the food and wine flowed freely. And that's what's going to lead us to point number one. We get a careless promise from a fearful king. Herod Antipas was not the leader that his father had been. From the accounts that we have of John's death, we learn two things Herod feared. We look at verse 5 in Matthew. It says, though Herod wanted to kill John, he feared the crowd since they regarded John as a prophet. So we know that Herod feared people. Herod actually wanted to put John to death as well, just like Herodias did but he feared the people of his kingdom. He was, after all, a politician. And who knows what the people might do if, they were, if he were to kill a man believed to be a prophet. One commentator noted that, quote, Jewish people were prone, prone to protest, which could be bad for a leader's career, end quote. So instead of sacrificing a career and a raising up through the ranks of Roman power, eventually maybe gaining some more land, Herod just decides to throw John into prison. How often do we worry about the people around us and how they might react or respond to what we say or do? How often are we prone to tell a little white lie because we don't want to embarrass ourselves or something along those lines? So Herod feared people. But this isn't the only thing that Herod feared. We take a look at Mark, verse 20 of chapter 6, tells us that Herod also feared John himself. In Mark 6.20, we learn that Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous man and holy, and kept him safe. As I said earlier, Herod liked to hear John speak, so John's down in the dungeon of Herod's castle, and Herod would go down there and talk to him. Um... I've already pointed out that John repeatedly told Herod of his sin, and he probably didn't just call him out on that one sin. He was probably telling him about how he lived a sinful life, but we also know that John was one who told and re said, repent for the kingdom of God. heaven is near. So he was telling him the things that he needed to hear, the things that he was preaching in the wilderness, that he needed to repent of his sin and to be baptized. 
He probably offered Herod an opportunity to be baptized right there in the dungeon. Dig me a ditch. We can pour some water in it. I can baptize you. I have that spirit. But Herod was not prepared to do the necessary things to make changes to his life. Herod thought all was well. He was preserving John's life by having him live there in the castle dungeon, ending his days there. He thought he was probably keeping him safer because who knows what Herodias could do if he was out of prison. And his people weren't revolting against him either. They knew he, was a, he had a prophet, someone believed to be a prophet in jail, but they were okay with that because he hadn't killed him. But then he made the fateful decision to hold this birthday banquet. And an opportunity arose for Herodias and Herod Antipas made a careless and rash promise. So I've already set the stage of what's going on at this party. We don't know when, but at some point, Herodias' daughter, from her marriage with Herod Philip, enters the party and dances before the company. What I learned while studying this passage is that she was a very young teenager, more than likely, and that the dance, while not stated in the text, was very sensual in nature. The dance not only pleased her stepfather, Herod Antipas, but as well as his guests, and in a more than likely intoxicated manner, Herod made a very careless promise to her. Ask me whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. Which, by the way, he was actually ruling under Rome, so he didn't actually have the power to give her half the kingdom if he really wanted to. But it didn't matter because... Uh, the daughter, being young enough, went to her mother to seek advice on what she should ask for, and Herodias saw her opportunity to fulfill her grudge against John the Baptist and prompts her to ask Herod, give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. There is no way to delay this request. Herod can't wait, sleep through the night and uh, sleep off his drunken state. Herodias has not only asked for the immediate execution of John, but also public proof before his guests at the party. Pride is the root of most sins, if we were to take a good inward look at ourselves. Have you ever told a little white lie to someone because you wanted just to look good in front of them? Here we have Herod in a drunken state who's made a rash promise, and now he has to keep it. One commentary stated, that, quote, Herod lacked the courage, humility, and perhaps also the sobriety or clarity of mind to do the right thing. Of supreme importance to him were the oaths made before the guests and the necessity not to lose face before them, end quote. If Herod doesn't keep his promise, he'll be embarrassed not in front of all these party guests, but also he's going to disappoint his stepdaughter. So Herod's fear of man leads to the immediate death and murder of John the Baptist. So what is it that we can take away from this point? I think it's important for us to think before we speak, not to make a careless promise or declaration, especially if they are the ones and we don't know what we're actually committing to, like Herod did. Herod knew that John the Baptist was going to die. He 
more than likely and probably wouldn't have made that promise. We don't know for sure, but that's the way this event plays out. In today's age, it's so easy to say things because we're hiding behind a screen. So text or social media, and we truly don't understand the implication of our own words. We get angry or upset. It may not even mean what we are saying, but we say words, we, we say things that still wound and hurt others. So I think before we speak or send or hit send on that text to one another or tweet or whatever social media platform it may be using, we need to consider the impact on what our words will have, not just on us, but as well as others. We also must not allow ourselves to be badly influenced by the people around us. <clears throat> there was a time in my own life in which in order to fit in with certain coworkers, my language would become coarse and profane. Not a thing that I'm proud of now, but it was something that I did just to fit in with coworkers. Thankfully, I had a second group of friends at the same job who took me to the side and not only pointed out to me what I was doing, but went above and beyond going, we don't like the guy you are with, you are when you're with them. And it's beginning to seek out take over when you aren't even with them. The first group of friends was having such a strong influence on me and I was blind to it. I am so thankful for those who are in my life that will hold me accountable to consider and repent of my sin. So Herod made a careless promise and it cost John the Baptist his life, which leads us to point number two. Point number two is a costly truth for a fearless prophet. So we don't know the exact amount of time that John spent in prison under Herod, but we do know a few things regarding his time while imprisoned. The last time we saw John in the Gospel of Matthew, way back in chapter 11, he was already imprisoned, which we had actually heard about in chapter 4. So like I pointed out, verses 3 through 12 are actually told to us via, via flashback. So in the timeline of Matthew, we don't actually know when um, Herod executed John, but we do know that it happened post-chapter 11. And we know, according to chapter 11, that while he was imprisoned by Herod Antipas, John was allowed some contact with his own disciples because they're the ones that sent word to Jesus asking Jesus if he was the one who was to come. So like I said, Herod, Herod's relationship with John was different. Herod, Herod allowed him to have visitors in jail. Herod himself visited him. Not only was uh, he able to send a message out via his disciples, but Jesus sent a message back to John via his own disciples. We don't even know why John was brought before Herod and Tippus in the first place. Maybe it was because of his preaching and teaching under Herod's rule. Or maybe he just decided to wander into Herod's courtyard and confront Herod and Herodias face to face. Um, we don't know. And no wonder Herodias held a grudge and wanted John dead. This is a prophet that came from the wilderness into her own home before her and her husband. He was wearing camel hair. He was wandering the desert. He probably didn't smell all that great or look all that great. And he was probably pretty filthy. Um, 
and he publicly denounces their marriage. It was speaking this truth that cost John his life. Last week, our brother Nathan referred to John the Baptist as the last of the old covenant martyrs. And that's exactly what he is. John was bold and courageous up to the very end, speaking the truth of God's word. John the Baptist, the prophet, was sent to prepare the way for the coming Messiah and denounced the sin of a royal family, spending his final months of life in a dungeon, only to be executed at the behest of a weak king who made a careless promise. J.C. Ryle says this about the death of John the Baptist. If ever there was a case of godliness unrewarded in this life, it was that of John the Baptist. Think for a moment what a man he was during his short career, and then think to what an end he came. Behold him, that was the prophet of the highest and greater than any born of woman, imprisoned like a malefactor. Behold him cut off by a violent death before the age of 34. The burning light quenched, the faithful preacher murdered for doing his duty and to gratify the hatred of an adulterous woman at the command of a capricious tyrant. Truly there was an event here if there ever was one in the world who might make an ignorant man say, what profit is it to serve God? While John may have been the last of the old covenant martyrs, he was not the final one. He wasn't the final martyr. If we jump ahead and look at the book of Acts, in chapter 7, we're gonna you would find Stephen's defense before the council. Stephen confronted his audience with the truth, and in doing so, it cost him his life. The council rejected his message and became furious and Stephen was stoned to death. Stephen became the first Christian martyr, but he wasn't the last one. If you've never done so, I recommend picking up a copy of John Fox's The Book of Martyrs and learning about the lives of many brothers and sisters in the faith who have given their life for the sake of God's kingdom. And while we may not see it going on today in America, we have brothers and sisters around the world who are living a life for God and are sacrificing their jobs, their families, their lives every day. So how do we apply the martyrdom of John the Baptist to our own life? John saw public sin and called it what it was, and we must do the same. No matter what the cultural around us says or thinks, we must speak the truth that we find in God's word. Speaking that truth will be costly. It cost John his life, and countless others have been martyred for speaking the truth of God's word. It may not cost us our life, but it may cost us a relationship, friendships, possibly even our job. But regardless of that cost, speaking the truth is worth it. We must stand with conviction no matter what the cost may be to us. We must not sacrifice our eternal rewards for things of this world. 
And once again, we should also be in prayer for our brothers and sisters around the world who are standing for Christ at the risk of their own lives. If John's hope had been just placed on the things of this world, it was all for naught. But John's hope was placed in those things to come, and that's what point number three is. That John, as well as us, have a confident hope in a forthcoming Messiah. John didn't fear death. He knew what he was there for. He was preparing the way for the Messiah. <clears throat> and maybe he didn't know that he was going to die the way he did, but speaking that truth was costly. We know that death is an enemy to mankind, and it is our sin and rebellion against a holy God that earns us death in the first place. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So God created man. He created everything, but specifically he created man in his image. And he created man for two things, for worship and to have a relationship with. Yet Adam and Eve rebelled and brought sin into the world fracturing that relationship with their creator. And due to Adam's sin, now everything is corrupted. <clears throat> and we are guilty before God, our creator. But God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. And that son is Jesus. Jesus the Messiah. Born 100% man and 100% God. Jesus lived a sinless life to die a sinner's death, the death that we deserve, a death upon the cross at Calvary. But Jesus defeats death three days later through resurrection. And for those that come to him, confess of their sins, repent of their sins, turn to him and believe in him as their savior, the same hope that John has awaits us. John really did to prepare the way for Jesus as Messiah, even in his own death. John's martyrdom is just a foreshadowing of Jesus' crucifixion. Well, the last time we see Herod Antipas is chapter 14 here in the book of Matthew. If we were to go to Luke's gospel, he makes another appearance. Herod Antipas is the same Herod that Pilate will send Jesus to. Herod and his soldiers mock Jesus, treat him with contempt, flog, flog him a little bit, and then ship him back to Pilate, where he's going to be delivered for crucifixion. So in the face of death, what reassuring hope is there for us? There's three points of application that we can find in a comforting hope in our forthcoming Messiah. Point number one is, that Jesus' victory over death means that we do not need to fear death just as John did not fear death. Jesus overpowered not just death, but Satan himself. And as believers, as Christians, we should not fear either physical or eternal death. We should live each day faithfully, doing our best to honor our Creator, sharing the good news of our Savior, and awaiting the return of our Messiah. 
Yes, this life will have trials and tribulations, but we can rely on the Holy Spirit as well as the church to help us as we traverse a broken world and wait for the new to return. Point number two is that for those that do not know Jesus, they should seek him, and that for those of us who do know Jesus, we should be telling those that do not. If you are here today and have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, please talk to me after the service or someone who's around you. Someone could be at the white flag before you're leaving. Jesus was victorious over death, and freedom awaits you. Facing death alone is a frightening idea. I can't imagine it. Over the last three years alone, we have mourned plenty as a church. But we've also been able to come alongside one another and mourn the loss together as family. I've been personally comforted by this church as well as being able to personally comfort others with their loss. Which leads us to the final point. As Christians, death is still going to grieve us. But Jesus' resurrection and victory over death means the sting of death is gone. And this is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he writes, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Paul then writes to the church in Thessalonia in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, We do not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Yes, because of the loss of a loved one, we grieve, but our grief is being separated from them. Our grief is more about being what's in the presence. I think about when my grandmother passed away last February. My grief at that time was for myself and for our family, but I knew she was no longer in pain, that the curse of cancer was no longer ravaging her body. I didn't grieve for her. She gained freedom in Christ. So I grieve for her loss, and I still do. I miss those birthday phone calls from my grandparents. I miss being able to pick up the phone and call her and talk to her. But I know she's free, and that I know because of that hope, I have a hope in Christ that I will see her again. That is the hope that I think we all have for one another in Christ, that, yes, it's a loss and it's a hurt that hurts here, but there is that that hope that we have that, it's not, it's not completely gone. We have the hope of eternity that awaits us. Our time with the lost loved ones who were believers. Our time with the heroes of the faith that we get to spend time with. The hope of being able to worship our Messiah face to face. J.C. Ryle said, Let all true Christians remember that their best things are yet to come. Let us count it not strange if we have suffering in this present time. John was able to be faithful and speak the truth of God because his hope was not placed in the things of this world. And so may we be like John and speak the same truth. Acclaimed author C.S. Lewis is well known for the Chronicles of Narnia, but also he has a collection of letters. He was known for corresponding with various people throughout his life. One of those 
correspondence was collected in a vo volume entitled Letters to an American Lady. Mary Willis Shelburne was her name. And she's actually a poet, and she had reached out to um, Lewis beforehand and um, sent him some of her poetry, and he gave it to his publisher and uh, was able to connect her and get her stuff published. And through that building of a relationship, they corresponded back and forth through the years. In one of those letters, Mary was written to him as she laid up in a hospital room, thinking that her days were numbered. Lewis challenged Mary about being fearful of death, writing to her, can you not see death as, a fr as the friend and deliverer? Has this world been so kind to you that you should leave it with regret? There are better things ahead that any we, than any we leave behind. There's some bittersweet irony in this correspondence, though. Mary, who thought her days were numbered, would go on to live 12 more years. Unbeknownst to Lewis, though, he, only had five, he was only five months away from his own death as he penned those words. C.S. Lewis would die of kidney failure on November 22nd, 1963. I've always thought his death was kind of overshadowed by the death of JFK. So fun fact for those of you that don't know that. Lewis's words of there are better things ahead than any we leave behind echo the sentiments of what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light monetary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all complete comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Christians, may we, may we be hopefully confident in our Savior, whose defeat over death has removed its sting of it. And may we be fearless as we continue to speak the truth of his gospel until he returns. Let us pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you so much for all that you do. Lord, it's difficult, but Lord, I pray that we're reminded this morning as Christians that death no longer has a hold on us. Lord, we grieve for those that we've lost, but uh, Lord, may we be looking forward to our eternity. As it was said this morning, Lord, this life is such a blip, and may we not be concerned about the things of this world, but may we be concerned more about pleasing a holy God who loved us enough to send his son to die on our behalf. Lord, we praise you for the relationship that we have with you. And this morning, Lord, I pray that there is someone here who has not placed their faith in you, has not started their relationship with you, Lord, that they, they seek the truth of these words that were preached. What your word says, Lord, about how you love us enough that you sent your son to die on our behalf. Lord, if they don't know Jesus as their Savior, may they know him and find him today. Lord, may we rely on one another as a church. May we mourn and grieve together, Lord, through it all. And may we reflect you to a world that does not know you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us.